Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, do Israeli spying firms present a global threat? Also, will the indigenous communities of North America benefit from the new infrastructure bills? And a fifth grader is determined to change the name of his elementary school in Fresno, California. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. That's KPFA in the Bay. And we are glad to have you along. We begin with, uh, well, uh, the impact, uh, the expanding impact that uh, Israeli spying firms are having uh, on the lives of people all over this world and the way in which uh, politicians do business. This is a very serious situation. Essentially, Israel has become uh, a major exporter of uh, national security structures. Uh, Somebody who's been following it very closely is Richard Silverstein. Silverstein is an independent journalist and researcher writing about Israeli foreign policy and covert operations. He writes the Takun Olam blog and contributes to Al Jazeera, English, Middle East Eye, and Jacobin magazine. Richard Silverstein, it's good to have you back. You've got a piece up now. NSO group targets 50,000 cell phone numbers in 50 countries. And you say heads of state, cabinet ministers, diplomats, security officials. Uh, please explain. Well, um, the, the most uh, um, important one that uh, has been in the news lately is that um, Morocco, the state of Morocco, bought uh, NSO's technology called Pegasus, uh, the malware, enables uh, a con- uh, intelligence service to infect your cell phone and take it over and uh, record and, and listen to and, and be aware of everything that you do on your cell phone. So Morocco used that uh, technology to uh, hack the phone of Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. And they hacked uh, the phones of prime ministers and foreign ministers. And now um, the latest is that um, NSO's technology was used by the Israeli Shin Bet, the domestic uh, uh, spy agency of the uh, state of Israel, to hack the phones of the foreign minister of the Palestinian Authority and workers for the six Palestinian NGOs, which were determined, uh, which were named as terrorist groups by the Israeli defense minister, and we can get into the uh, the thinking behind what Israel did about that. But um, the, the latest is, um, is the, uh, the, the, the bad uses to which uh, NSS technology was put by uh, Israel. All right. Um, talk a little bit more about this, uh, shall we call it, this uh, expanding export industry. Uh, paint us a, a, a more complex, uh, precise picture of what uh, this program leads to, how, how it's now impacting uh, global security. What does this mean to the way in which foreign policy happens from Israel and around the world? 
Well, as you mentioned, um, I, I wrote a, a blog post, I believe, uh, a while ago, saying that um, the Pegasus papers did found that pe- um, that the NSO's technology uh, was targeting people in 50 countries, and they had a target list of 50,000 cell phone numbers that they wanted to hack. And they didn't hack every one of them, but uh, those they did hack many of those numbers. And they include, uh, you know, states like Mexico, Azerbaijan, uh, Morocco. Uh, These are 50 countries that were clients of NSO. NSO is the most lucrative uh, spyware company in the world. And um, NSO, we should be aware that NSO just isn't just uh, impacting uh, countries like Mexico or Azerbaijan or whatever. They're impacting the United States. Um, the, uh, The Saudis used an exploit to hack into the WhatsApp uh, application, and 1,400 people using WhatsApp who were deemed to be enemies of the Saudi government uh, were targeted. Um, So WhatsApp is now suing NSO in federal court, and the case so far is looking pretty good in terms of, um, you know, NSO being held to account, although they're still in the middle of, uh, you know, of of all the proceedings. So um, this is not like an abstract uh, issue. It's affecting um, American companies as well. And I should also add that um, this is also not abstract in the sense that it just um, hacks into your cell phone because the uses to which Pegasus is put will end up getting people killed. Um, a Mexican journalist who was targeted by Pegasus, um, the, his killers used Pegasus to track where he was uh, by, uh, you know, being able to track his cell phone so they knew his exact location and they could target him and, and assassinate him and Jamal Khashoggi uh, and, and everybody who he communicated with was known to the Saudis and they were able to track where he was and where he would be and that's how they ended up killing him so um, this technology is deadly and Israel is um, and not just NSO but Israel itself is a state w- in which uh, surveillance technology and spyware and spying is uh, is a mass surveillance state using it against the Palestinians, and it's field tested. These these technologies and innovations and weapons are field tested on the Palestinians, and then they go out and sell the technology uh, throughout the world. And they export not just the technology, but they export the values of the Israeli state on which all of this technology is based. So it, it wouldn't really. Uh, be a great exaggeration to say that one of its major export industries is counterinsurgency. Well, absolutely. I mean, Israel is actually the eighth or ninth largest arms exporter in the world. So it's not it, it's it's exporting, of course, the conventional weapons. But we have to count in 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 this that um, and, and and think about also the fact that Israel was the leading uh, innovator in drone technology uh, and the use of targeted killings by drones. Um, and and they've they've pioneered a huge number of counterterror uh, um, tactics and counterterror products um, throughout the world. And uh, I wouldn't say that the America is pikers by comparison because we have such great um, capabilities ourselves, but we learned a lot of what we now uh, do and know from the Israelis who, who got there first. So 
Really, I don't want to belabor this point, but it is, you mentioned uh, the way in which it puts uh, journalists in jeopardy. And, it, I mean, it, it really puts in jeopardy the very process of doing journalism. Um, That's right. I mean, and, and, sorry. Go on, please. Um, yeah, it's and it's journalism, and it's also fundamental values that we have as as uh, a democracy. Um, the, this technology is used to target human rights activists, and in various countries, the uh, dictators in in these countries have used the technology to arrest human rights activists. Um, a staff member of Amnesty International was targeted by this technology, and Amnesty sued NSO in Israel, and because. Because the Israeli justice system is tied up in this Israeli national security state, the justice system in Israel refused to hold NSO accountable, uh, despite the fact that they had um, hacked into Amnesty International's um, um, cell phone, the staff member's cell phone. So all of the things that we hold value uh, hold to be of value as a democracy, uh, as a liberal democracy, are under threat by NSO and by um, the sort of mindset and the technology that Israel exports. We're speaking with Richard Silverstein again. Uh, he's an independent journalist researcher writing about Israeli foreign policy and covert actions. Uh, and he's written extensively about uh, Israel's uh, newest and most expansive export industry, which is really surveillance systems or repression, you might say. Uh, but I, I want to ask you, I mean, you weren't, it wasn't hyperbole to say that the kinds of things that uh, Israel markets abroad so that other countries uh, can repress their people are Palestinian tested and they mm -hmm. do play a part in the expanded brutality of the of, uh, of the occupation right um the um, the IDF um, develops these innovative and quotes innovative um, new conventional weapons um, and uses them on the on the Israelis and then they can go to countries in the world that are uh, importing uh, huge amounts of weapons like India and Azerbaijan and they can show them the technology as it's been tested in the field um, it's not like an abstract principle where the Israelis will say well you know we have this weapon we know it's great and our engineers have tested it um but we haven't uh, seen any uses of it um they can actually say we used it uh, in may of 2021 in gaza and it was used in a specific incident and it had a specific impact um uh, they can they can export things like um the uh the iaf using these bunker busting bombs to destroy the tunnels under gaza and uh, You'll recall the apartment tower that was toppled um, by using very precise munitions uh, by the jet, the warplanes that, that destroyed that 12-story building. So um, this really gives Israel a leg up other, over other countries which um, may be developing similar weapons but um, can't say that they're, they're using them on the, the battlefield. So the Palestinians really become a... Um, uh, 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 
like guinea pigs for the Israelis. Um, and because they're relatively defenseless uh, compared to the Israelis, um, the Israelis are not going to pay any price for, for what they do. Um, but I did want to go back and talk about, if you don't mind, the campaign that Israel is waging against the Palestinians in another realm, and that is the Palestinian human rights groups. There were six of them that the defense ministry right. has yes. uh, named to be terror groups, even though that's yes. actually a lie. But um, the reason for this and the reason why they hacked the phone of the foreign minister is that all of them have either given evidence to the ICC of Israeli war crimes or have consulted with the ICC on the investigation that they're doing of Israel, which could, if um, the ICC could find that Israel to be guilty of war crimes. And the Israelis are petrified of this because it will be a major international institution finding Israel for the first time guilty of war crimes. And they've been committing these war crimes over decades, but they've never been held accountable on any international uh, stage. And so uh, Israel has mounted this ferocious campaign attacking these NGOs um, and calling them terror groups. And um, they can't, of course, call the, Pal the Palestinian Authority or its foreign minister um, uh, a terrorist, but um, they, they were very angry when he went to The Hague and met with the ICC, and they detained his senior aides for 90 minutes and interrogated them, and they took away his VIP uh, visa, which allowed him to go in and out of uh, of uh, Palestine unhindered um, as punishment for uh, what he had done. So um, it's important to note that um, Israel is really uh, shuddering in the face of the ICC, and it may be one of the few international institutions which can hold Israel uh, accountable. Just say a little bit more about what their case is. They have a specific case uh, against Israel now. What, what about it would really make the Israelis nervous? Say a little bit more about that, because again, well, this the, is the, the most sensitive story of our time. Right. The, the main incident that they are investigating is Operation Protective Edge from 2014, and in that invasion of Lebanon, 2,300 Palestinians were killed. At least 1,500 of them were civilians. Most of those 1,500 were women and children. Um, hundreds of Palestinian children were killed. And the ICC has taken up uh, uh, an investigation into whether that was uh, a war crime. But it also is pretty inclusive. It, it's in, going to include the issue of whether the settlements are a violation of international law and almost every serious uh, international law, lawyer specializing in international law um, basically acknowledges that Israel is culpable. Um, but the ICC is going to undertake a very you know painstaking investigation of all of this before it makes any determination. So um, the investigation really is including almost everything from 2014 on, and that will include the last uh, attack of Israel against Gaza in May. Um, so I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of evidence that's going to be offered to the ICC. And the six Palestinian NGOs, which were uh, uh, named terror groups, are uh, the ones that are providing testimony, providing witnesses to the ICC. Um, they are going to put the nails in the coffin uh, uh, of Israel um, regarding 
this case. And that's why Israel is desperate to try to turn them into terrorists or uh, impugn them or, or smear them in, in any way that they can. Uh, before we go, I have to say, wouldn't you say the real politic here is if the United States doesn't want anything to happen in this context, they're going to do everything in their power to make sure it doesn't. Is it possible to hold Israel accountable when you've got uh, the United States uh, that is really sort of consistent across uh, regimes? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think that the Biden administration is quite um, um, divided about uh, Israel, relations with Israel. Trump, of course, uh, was was enormously uh, friendly and uh, sycophantic towards Israel. But Biden is really different, and he's quite uh, negative about, uh, about Israel and been quite critical, not publicly, but in terms of the actions the administration has taken. So even though we claim not to recognize the ICC, and we uh, uh, also are saying that we don't want the ICC to adjudicate this case. I don't think that when push comes to shove, Biden is going to stand in the way. Now, Israel itself is going to try to uh, lobby all of the countries as hard as it can to get them to put pressure on the ICC. Um, but it, I don't know how much power they're going to have uh, in that regard, because their reputation continues to sink uh, with their Every new, um, uh, uh, you know, every new development like the the ones we're talking about with the NSO uh, being found uh, to have this global network of uh, of cyber predatory behavior. So um, I, I think that Israel is going to be limited in terms of the, uh, what power it's going to have to stop this. And I don't think the U.S., uh, at least as long as Biden is president, is going to be rallying to Israel's um, um, support, uh, at least in terms of the ICC. Well, that's the most positive analysis I've heard to date. I hope uh, you are right here. Uh, we've been speaking with Richard Silverstein, a wonderful journalist. Uh, uh, Silverstein is an independent journalist, researcher, writing about foreign policy and covert actions regarding Israel. He writes at Tikkun Olam blog. He also appears at Al Jazeera, Middle East Eye, Jacobin Magazine. Uh, thank you so much for the good information. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dennis, and I hope people will take a look at the article I just wrote for Jacobin Magazine. Thanks again. All right. Be careful. Uh, and you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Who's listening? Well, I guess our, our phone conversation was public. Who's listening? Who's got their ear to the ground? I have to say, I'm slightly concerned. Uh, again, it's Flashpoints. We're going to take a two-minute break, a music break, a really nice music break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by an old friend of this show, Andrea Carmen. She is the executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. And we're going to sort of talk about what all these big packages uh, that might be coming out of Washington mean to the indigenous communities. Stay with us.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Marvelous music, Knives Out by Wajid. Beautiful piece. Again, I'm Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We are honored to welcome back to these airwaves Andrea Carmen. She's executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. And we got a lot to talk about. Andrea, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm back from Glasgow, Scotland, from COP26. Um, that means in UN talk, uh, the 26th Conference of the Parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And, of course, the parties are the countries, the states that signed on to the Paris Agreement, including the United States. And um, we had the opportunity there to, uh, one one of the things that we did uh, is meet with um, Special Envoy John Kerry and um, Secretary of Interior Deb Howland in the meeting that they had with Indigenous peoples to talk about um, what we think the U.S. should be standing for and doing regarding climate change. Um, like like every UN meeting, but I think probably most typical of the climate change talks, the COPs as they're called, um, conference of the parties. Um, you know, the, the results were were a mixed bag. Some really good things happened. Some new progress uh, that we've been working on for a long time um, came about, and obviously there's a lot of shortfalls, especially in commitments from the countries from the states that would be equal to the task of keeping uh, emissions down to the level that would ensure at least indigenous people's way of life and the survival of a million species right now that are threatened. And, you know, they went further than they have before, but it wasn't anywhere near far enough. So I could, uh, you know, give, give you some more explanation of that, but, you know, we were also get able to have Indigenous peoples' uh, rights recognized in a negotiation we've been working on for six years, which we don't really like it very much. It's about, you know, market and, and non-market solutions, things like carbon trading, forest offsets. But as long as it was in there anyway, and it was going to be in there, um, we were quite insistent that it had to include safeguards for Indigenous peoples' rights um, because there can be a lot of very bad impacts of those things. And, you know, we we question whether it's even a solution to climate change. If it's offsetting something, it may be useful to some Indigenous peoples to save their forests, protect their forests, but what is it offsetting and what's it doing, you know, on the ground where those projects um, that are causing destruction and emissions somewhere else you know, it's, it's it's not really, it's a zero-sum game, right? You create pollution and then you trade it so, you know, you can save a forest, or, you know. And, and also there's a lot of projects going on, mega projects, in the name of, of clean energy or low-power, low-carbon emissions like dams and plantations that cause relocation and destruction in a lot of places so we were very happy to at least get the rights of indigenous peoples into that final text there were definitely many battlefronts uh you know they're the extractors they're what you're talking about now Uh, by the way let me ask you to adjust your body a little bit because it's uh you're coming in uh it's a little difficult to hear um can you i'm going to ask you to just back up a little bit and say a little bit about what what do the indigenous communities have to offer the rest of the world 
about living with the planet. You began to allude to that a little bit, but what is, uh, wh- what do we need to learn from you all? Well, that was a huge gain for us at um, COP26 in Glasgow. I'm a member of what's called um, a constitutive body, an official body at uh, the UNFCCC um, that was founded about three years ago after a lot of fighting for it by Indigenous peoples uh, called Local Communities and Indigenous Peoples Platform, the facilitative working group. And it's the first time we've gotten direct representation that that has been recognized. We don't have to go through the states. The seven regions of Indigenous peoples nominated their own representatives of their choice. So there's seven of us from Indigenous peoples and seven um, country representatives, including small island developing states, has a seat, and, you know, several other um, the different regions. But we um, organized an activity, and I was one of the three co-leads for it, where we actually brought, at their expense, um, 28 indigenous knowledge holders, youth, spiritual leaders, food producers, elders, women, uh, from from all of the seven regions, and we came together, and the first um, day of the activity was closed to only Indigenous peoples. We were kind of chuckling because we get closed out of so many of those like high-level ministerial negotiations. This was the first time Indigenous peoples had a closed meeting because we, in- we assured the knowledge holders that it would only be Indigenous peoples, it wouldn't be recorded, it wouldn't be webcast they could really share their knowledge freely. And it was amazing. I mean, there were tears shed, there were, you know, laughter, there was uh, an amazing exchange between Indigenous peoples from, you know, the Arctic and Africa and North America and South America, the Pacific Islands, talking about exactly what you're asking about. What do we have to offer? What do we know? What is climate change for us? What are the lessons to learn? And I remember um, one of the Arctic representatives, Anders Osko, who's also the director of the World um, Reindeer Herders Association. He's Sami from Norway. He said in their philosophy, they, you know, he offered uh, this um, knowledge that could help bring about a solution to climate change. He said, in our way, our teaching is um, take only what you need use everything you take and share what you have. And the second day we met with the states, with the countries, including the presidency of the COP, Great Britain, and shared those kinds of messages of a new way of thinking about our relationship as humans to the natural world um, and respect for indigenous people's rights and knowledge as a key component to climate solutions. We've never done anything like that before. This was the first historic moment. And even the countries were really, really excited about having that kind of knowledge on the table. They really are listening. I don't know if they're you know, ready to implement everything we say, but you can tell the difference between somebody just checking the box, okay, let's go listen to the indigenous peoples. But they're actually listening. I think they must be really scared. They're listening to the scientists. <laughs> um, they're looking at what's happening in their own countries. And suddenly, wow, indigenous peoples may have something here for us to listen to. So this was the first time that there was an interaction between our traditional knowledge holders and food producers, spiritual leaders, youth and elders, women and men, 
on the ground. They, these aren't people that usually go to, you know, these negotiations. A lot of them had never left their home communities before. It was a huge piece of coordination and all these different languages and a lot of COVID restrictions. You had to upload a daily test in your cell phone. Well, half of our knowledge holders didn't even have cell phones. <laughs> so we, you know, it was a big coordination, but it was so well worth it. Um, and I think if they're going to make that part of these discussions going forward, not just the activists, but our traditional knowledge holders and practitioners who are already working on adapting to climate change in their in our own homelands because we have to. You know, we're looking at that, you know, what's coming and what's already here now in a lot of places. And there's a lot of knowledge and lived experience that can be shared, you know, if they want to. I mean, it's free prior informed consent, right? But but there was a lot of amazing information that was shared, not just among the indigenous peoples, but when we met the next day with the states, with the countries and they really wanted to hear it. They really did, you know. Something I think you're right. I think they're. I think they're finally getting the point that they're not going to be able to do it their way. We're speaking with Andrea Carmen. She's executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. Uh, she has uh, been engaged in trying to save the planet in recent meetings uh, uh, that the globe has been watching. All of us from around the world. Uh, and Andrea, I guess I want to ask you about. Your friend Deb Howland, who's Interior Secretary now, and I'm wondering if from the home front, this makes a difference in terms of what you're talking about now that you have uh, an indigenous community member at uh, a high position of power who might be able to do something to coordinate what you have been doing, fighting on the ground, on the front line for so long. Well, I think it's pretty significant that the United States delegation, and we met with several different branches of them, the U.S. State Department, but in this particular meeting was with, um, you know, former Secretary of State John Kerry and, and, um, Secretary Howland, um, that really demonstrated and they expressed this to the same thing that, um, not just, you know, U.S. representatives of tribals um, in, in the U.S., but also they invited indigenous representatives from Latin America, from the Amazon, from Asia, from Africa, to, to really hear a global perspective from indigenous peoples about, you know, about the specific negotiations. And, you know, one of the issues, of course, that we talked about was the Article 6 that I referred to, and we ended up getting the language um, that we wanted to. Other um, other language we were not able to get as strong as we would like, but that's also what usually happens at the United Nations. There was, uh, in, the, in the final negotiations, I just want to mention something about that. Um, the final plenary, you know, was supposed to end like at 6 o'clock, and it went, you know, into almost midnight. Um, but um, there was a couple of issues there that were pretty important. Uh, for everyone to understand. First of all, this was the first time that, you know, the big elephant in the room, fossil fuel production, was ever mentioned 
in an outcome document from the COP. It's not, it doesn't even mention that in the Paris Agreement, that, you know, the main cause of climate change. This time they talked about um, a global commitment to reduce subsidies for non-sustainable energy production, but there was strong language in there um, when they went in to a, with a consensus document into the plenary um, saying that they were going to phase out coal. The, the, the dirtiest of all the fossil fuels. And at the last minute, after two weeks of negotiations where this wasn't raised, India and China objected to that language. And instead, they said they would agree to phasing down coal, whatever that means. Not phasing out, but phasing down um, the use of coal. I guess in some ways you could see that as you're better than nothing, but, you know, the small island states, the European Union... Um, expressed right there on the floor, you know, their extreme disappointment, not just with weakened language being proposed, that they had to accept at the end of the day it has to be by consensus. And this was like the last minute, but also the way the negotiations were carried out in such bad faith. They had two weeks to discuss this language. They waited until the closing plenary when there was very little any of the other states could do. You know, it had to be adopted by consensus and as one of the indigenous delegates who watched this to the very end said, they, they settled for progress rather than perfect. And some things are just kicked down the road to the next um, COP, which is going to be in, in um, Egypt uh, next year. So we'll be there. We'll be there to see what more we can do. Right. And hopefully right. they'll keep incorporating the participation of our knowledge holders as the ones that really hold solutions if they choose to listen. Amazing. That's the voice of Andrea Carmen. She's executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. She's a good friend of the show. We are always delighted to have you on. Before I let you go, Andrea, I want to tell you about our next segment and ask you to sort of comment on what's coming up. Uh, next segment, we have a, a young man we're going to be talking about, about a fifth grader who's on a quest to change the name of his school from Polk to something that, well, you know, the, the former president, and he's sort of taking objection to having this former president be the name of his elementary school. What's so important? What's in a name? Why should people care about what a school or a building or a team is named. Any encouragement for our uh, our budding uh, activists? Our <laughs> budding activists? Yes, absolutely. It does make all the difference in the world, that identification. And also, you know, honoring truth in history. I mean, um, the elementary school that I went to in the Bay Area was called Van Aken Elementary School in Palo Alto, back when Palo Alto was orchards and you know fields and rivers um kind of a, a working class neighborhood but um it was called i guess named after the first supervisor of schools in the area now it's named ohlone school elementary school and you know just thinking of the progress that that indicates you know i mean it helps those kids say well, what does Ohlone mean? You know, where, 
where did they live? Did they live here? What happened to them? You know, that, that kind of Susan history that gets kids starting to think and talk about, um, you know, what, what their identity is, you know. And, of course, we all know we strongly identified, you know, with, with our schools and with the mascots. And, you know, it helps to form our, our own identity. Um, so what does he want to name it? Well, we're going to find that out. That's the drama coming up. Uh, but uh, we think uh, we think in terms of President Polk, uh, who was Mr. Manifest Destiny, uh, maybe that's not such a good example uh, in terms of yeah, what no, you want exactly to name your right. school. Yeah, exactly right. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, heroes and heroines that are very unrecognized and. Um, you know, uh, tribal nations, of course, I think it, it's great that, you know, schools and places be named after the original people from that place and in a respectful way, not, you know, some kind of mascot, but, you know, a real honoring or after heroes um, from from that area, from that place. So I'm really interested to hear that. We completely support that and you know who was polk anyway how do you even identify with that yeah manifest uh, destiny but i don't think most people even know that you know so that well that's you know, that, that is the point right that is the point that's a, a great subject for a, a fifth grader to explore and we're going to explore it with him in a moment again thank you so much for taking the time out andrea always welcome open door policy any day of the week and twice on any other day Please stay safe. Great. Don't forget uh, Alcatraz Island, Indigenous Peoples Thanksgiving on the 25th, um, Pier 33, boats leave, I think, starting at 4.15, oh, and you can still get tickets at, I think it's called City Enterprises on the Alcatraz Cruises new website. And, of course, we'll, it will be broadcast live on KPFA starting at 5.30 a.m. If you can't drag yourself out of bed, you can at least be with us through KPFA. And, you know, we, we really honor and respect um, Radio Free Alcatraz all these years through KPFA. So we'll either see you or uh, be listened to you by um, uh, on Thursday coming up. Radio Free Alcatraz. We've been doing it on Flashpoints for the last close to 20 years, I guess. Uh, and it's always an honor to be out there for the sunrise ceremony, the dancing, the drums, and the, the spiritual sharings. Always amazing. Uh, and uh, Andrea Carmen, uh, you are wonderful. Thanks for spending this time with us. Thank you for inviting me, Dennis. Anytime. Anytime. And uh, you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a, about a two-minute break. When we come back, uh, we're going to be joined by a young man and his dad. And we're going to ask him why it was important for him to change the name of his elementary school. Stay with us. We've all heard so many conflicting words about life, whether wrong or right, how you 
gotta be working hard And it ain't no easy job Trying to survive I just stay alive We've all come to think Of ourselves as links In the chain So much gain We are the ones Who tie our fathers to our sons Don't you know That's how it grows What my life really means is that the songs that I sing Are just pieces of a dream that I've been building We can make a stand and here I'm reaching out my hand Cause you know them what we can if we are willing But we got to be And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. Always happy to have you along. Malachi Suarez is a fifth grader at James K. Polk Elementary. That's in Fresno, California. The budding activist, yes, that's what I think he is, uh, with the full support of mom and dad, is demanding that his school be renamed. Uh, starting as an assignment from his uh, teacher, Malachi, researched who his elementary school was named after and was angered to find that the person Polk Elementary was honoring was not someone he wanted to look up to. Suarez has now a petition going around explaining why he is calling for this change and that's what we want to ask him so we would love to welcome you um uh malachi suarez uh to flashpoints uh, along with your dad uh gabriel welcome both of you thank you thank you you're welcome malachi um could you tell us a little bit about who James K. Polk is and why you don't think it's a good idea to name him, honor him with the name of your school? Okay. James K. Polk was a racist that stole land from Native Americans and Mexicans. He was a slave owner and his pioneers murdered people in cold blood to steal their land. And he and the idea was manifest destiny. God said that they're in, they're entitled to the land, so they went to take it. And he had slaves. He also had slaves in the White House, and it was anti-abolition. So, well, but you know, sometimes they say, like, what's in a name? Why do you think it's important to? Uh, to have, say, a name of a person you'd like to celebrate or be proud of who maybe represents something about where you come from or your background. What's so important about that? We don't feel welcome. And also, uh, kids, they um, they grow to support that name if they, if they are not educated. And um, what do what 
did your friends, your classmates, did, did you share with them? Tell us a little bit about uh, how you um, created this project uh, and like what happened in terms of the learning process. How did you go about studying it? Well, I well, and I did it in my gate class and started in my gate class. I researched a lot of it online, and um, my, my the gate classmates they're the ones who voted to get me like the supplies and actually get my project started. And that that. That didn't really have an impact because later everybody got supplies. But um, my classmates, there was one meeting that my classmate, I've known her for a long time before I went to school. She came and she was, and it was supposed to be students only. She was the only student who came and and. And um, another one so, of my classmates said, uh, replied to me sharing it. She said, quote, unquote, hell no nah, to changing the name. Just nothing, no excuses, just hell no. Nah. Let, let me, um, it's interesting. There's been a lot of different responses uh, to this decision, and it really has become a bit of a controversy. But I was reading through some of the emails uh, that you got. Um, for instance, here's one. So proud of this young person, Malachi. I am in awe of your uh, tenacity. It takes a special person to see the wrong in our institutions, to say something about it, to do something about it. And even after uh, attempts to shut you down, you took it to a higher power. Well, so what you learned is when you you want to go out there and do social change, uh, everybody's not going to agree with you. And, and there's a process by which you, I guess, you want to provide information. Maybe that's why you made this petition, because you wanted to uh, be able to share information and see if you could influence people who might not be open to it. Yes, that um, is one of the reasons that I started my petition. That is one of the main reasons that I started my petition. And uh, how it, how did people to go on go on? It was to educate people about the unacceptable history of James K. Polk and my school being named after him. Wow, and. You know that this is sort of going on all over California and all over the country in terms of changing names. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there was another James Polk school that had its name changed. Is that true? Um, yes. And I know that it is going over California and the entire country. And I am proud of myself for that. Well, uh, I think that's something to be proud of. Uh, let me see if I can get your father to join in. Uh, Gabriel Suarez, are you there? Yes. Welcome. Uh, are you proud of your son? And, and uh, tell us about uh, 
how you you think this is a, a really positive project and a good part of uh, his learning experience lately? I am extremely proud of Malachi. Uh, I am proud of his tenacity and his resolve to keep going in the face of adversity. He has uh, managed to educate people around the country, and he has garnered a lot of support from the progressive community, and I'm proud that he has learned from this experience that there are other people like him who are willing to lend their support, and that um, he has learned that he can make a change in his community. Now, I understand uh, that there was a committee that essentially seemed to be an outgrowth of uh, your son's project uh, to evaluate all the names of schools in Fresno and uh, consider if they need to be changed or, or what the history is. Is that true? Yes, that is correct. A renaming committee was created because of Malachi's project to address the names and mascots of all of the schools in the district. And um, are there any kids on that committee? We were hoping that Malachi would be on the committee, but there are no students on the committee. But unfortunately, there are two parents on the committee who took it upon themselves to tear Malachi's poster down from the wall at his school because they were offended by the objective truth that he was presenting. They tore his poster down. Malachi, how did you feel about having the poster torn down? I guess that would certainly tell you that people care a lot about the issue. They might not agree with you, but they're certainly paying attention. Yes, but I feel angry about it and also disgusted and a little sad. Sad. Um, but... It, it, you realize that sometimes, you know, people who are thinking a certain way for a long time need to be convinced with information, petitions, teachings, um, various ways uh, that there are various ways that change happen. You think you're learning about that in, in doing this well, project? Well, people like the... Um, the uh, the people like the people that tore down my poster cannot be educated about that. They cannot have their minds changed. They are stuck in their ways. They are not open to different ideas. Does uh, I know you said you're disappointed and maybe uh, a little bit discouraged, but it doesn't sound like. Uh, you're going to be giving up on this idea. Uh, you, you see, it seems like Malachi, you strong. You feel stronger than ever. Is that true? My name is Malachi, and yes, I do. I'm sorry. Forgive me, Malachi. Thank you for the correction. Um, so, yeah, you. So, you, you, your answer was you feel stronger now than ever in terms of this idea. And again. Give us your best answer. What's in a name for you? Uh, why, who, by the way, do, who do you? Who would you love your school to be named after? Do you have any, any ideas? Maria Moreno. 
And who is that? She is the first female farm laborer. That uh, uh, she was a union organizer. A union organizer, and why? I mean, yeah, uh, first male farm laborer was a union organizer. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> we all make mistakes. Uh, so I assume uh, that that uh, you will keep going uh, on this project. Uh, you think uh, it's also a lesson? It, did. Did this um, encourage your interest in learning? Did, did, uh, do you see this as an important learning experience in terms of, you know, expanding your knowledge and your understanding of the world? Yes. How I so? have learned How? I have learned that I can find answers and how to get support from the progressive community. Uh, like... And I can accomplish big things by not giving up. I can make my com- I can sorry. I can make change in my community, and they support me. Uh, yeah, that sounds like uh, a good place to leave it at this point. We want you to come back and keep us posted. Uh, and uh, if you're victorious in that, uh, they decide to change the name, and there's a ribbon cutting. Uh, Tell us about it. Maybe we can come over and watch them change the name on the school. Uh, do you? Uh, I, I guess uh, that would be. You would consider that um, uh, a good first step in uh, changing the names uh, that need to be changed. But we're gonna have well, to leave it right there because we're. Go on. Go on. Oh yes. Go well, on. Yeah. Uh, I have a website, actually, and it's www.renamepolkelementary.com, and I'm still collecting signatures on my petition on my website, so please sign and share my uh, petition. Give us the website again, one more time, slowly. www.renamepolk. <laughs> elementary.com All right. Thank you both, Gabriel Suarez uh, and uh, the visionary uh, leader who is going to uh, determine to change the name of his elementary school for the good of the people. Both of you, uh, we appreciate your presence on Flashpoints. Please come back and join us again. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short musical break, and then I'm going to have a program note for you. Stay with us.
And uh, just uh, this program note, uh, tomorrow we are going to spend a good part of the hour with Medea Benjamin, who uh, obviously uh, is a hero here in the Bay Area and now globally the founder of Code Pink. Uh, and she just returned from Cuba. So we're going to do a report back debriefing tomorrow here on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Also, we're going to we're working very hard. I have to admit that after a 30 year hiatus, I've written another song. I used to that's what I used to do in this world. Songs, poetry, theater. And then somehow I got sucked into journalism. Uh, but if all goes well, we're going to introduce... We I've been working on a song with our resident troubadour, Francisco Herrera, uh, a song for Julian Assange, who is uh, at threat of losing his life behind bars. Uh, and we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, they are considering his fate now. And so we wanted to write a song, Francisco Herrera and I, to build up the spirit keep people going we support him and his great work as a journalist and a publisher uh and all that he's done um to make important information available information that has changed lives and in the case of the release of the video known as collateral murder really went a long way to stopping an illegal war in Iraq and saving many, many lives. We're going to leave it there for now. Tomorrow again with Medea Benjamin. Stay tuned. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.